Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders Podcast. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. I'm pleased to be joined today by Mel Lagomasino, the co-founder and CEO of We Family Offices. Thanks for joining me, Mel. Thank you for having me, Chaz. I'd actually like to go back to the beginnings of your career because while your career has been marked by a number of great firms and the positions that you've had and the things that you've accomplished, I'd actually like to go back to the beginning. What got you started? What spurred your interest in finance and wealth management? At a certain point, I was 27 years old and I was deciding really what kind of work I wanted to do. And I had decided that I wanted to be in the business world. I actually uh, was quite social at that time. So I went around and asked all my friends that I, that I would meet, you know, what do you do? I, I sort of did a survey. And, um, and what do you like about it? And what don't you like about it? And what does your day look like? And I actually narrowed it down to two industries, to uh, banking and advertising. And then I had a very good friend who um, worked at Citibank Private Bank and she got me an interview. And that interview ended that same day with 11 different interviews. And by the end of the day, I was totally struck by how much I'd really like to work there in the private banking division at, at Citibank. And they offered me the job and I took it. And what happened was that as I got into it, it had a tremendous personal meaning for me because these were all international families. I started out with Chile and, and Peru and there were families who had gone through things that were similar to what my family had gone through in Cuba. And so the helping them became very personal for me. And I, I remember a couple of years into the job that I thought, well, if my family had had somebody like me helping them, maybe our lives would have been not as hard and quite different. So for me, the interest was much more than an interest. It was really a purpose and a mission to help these families. And as, as my career evolved, and as I started having more and more responsibility with more and more countries and more and more issues, actually the passion never changed because it, it always went down to the core, which was that these families had basically had spent blood, sweat, and tears creating this, this wealth. And I wanted to help them protect it and do with it what they wanted to do and not have others, whether it was a government or a relative, uh, take it away from them. Well, it's just so interesting to me because I didn't realize quite how personal it was to you. Oh, very personal. <laughs> and I get that now, but actually I think that ties in very well to as you say, the passion that drove you to start we, and as you've told me on prior occasions, nobody else was really doing, or you certainly weren't in a position at GenSpring to do what we is doing now. Tell me a little bit more about the formation of we and why we kind of stands out from all the wealth management businesses and uh, business models that you've worked with in the past. Well, I, I think, you know, that, um, 
whether it was at the bank and it was that bank or any other bank or, or GenSpring, I, I think that the business model is a business model that is about having selling or having your clients buy your products and services. And, um, and I think that that gets in the way of really being able to help a client without any agenda whatsoever around whatever it is, without any product, without any, with total alignment and undivided loyalty. And by the way, GenSpring was, was more aligned than the bank, but not quite as, as much as I would have wanted it to be. And so when we founded we, we said, we're gonna have a business model where it's really clear that we have undivided loyalty uh, to the families we serve. And there is absolutely nothing that gets in the way. There's no economic interest. There's no reason whatsoever not to give our clients our best advice. It's actually something that you and I have talked about in the past. And I think the phrase that you have used is, we are missionaries, not mercenaries. And yeah, totally. <laughs> it, just, it just kind of goes back to this whole <clears throat> capitalistic approach to making money, <clears throat> which is great. And uh, wealthy families and those that you advise have created great wealth by being shrewd investors and by managing their money carefully and you're managing all their financial affairs. But I can attest, it's incredibly rare to think about having a mission that is all about family welfare, not just about family capitalism. And it's certainly not about products. It's about an open architecture, unbiased approach to long-term uh, client welfare. Our families need everything. They need all the brokers. They need all the banks. They, know, they need all the insurance agents. They need all the asset managers. They need all of that. But then they also need someone who's thinking only about them and what do they need and, and how to be sure that they understand how to buy whatever they need from all these different providers and what the differences are. So how do you think then about the competition? Does we have certain competitors? I would think that certain trust and estate lawyers, certain accountants and tax advisors who have spent decades with families, um, other folks in the wealth management industry who they have worked with over time. How does we distinguish itself from the sea of folk out there who would suggest that they can do many of the things that you do? Well, I, I think that um, anyone who's a fiduciary in the wealth management space, in a way, is competing with us. I mean, I, I think our only real competition from our perspective is somebody who's a fiduciary. Having said that, clients use banks, they use their attorneys, they use a lot of people to deal with a lot of these issues. So in a way, everyone's our competition, and in a way, nobody's our competition. <laughs> Uh, because we think that what we do for clients is sort of sweet generous. Um, and it's not just about taxes and it's not just about investments and it's not just about reporting and it's not just about admin and it's not just about governance. It's about all of those things. Now, I, I certainly understand the difference um, and that's not going to stop all of the investment managers, product pushers, um, private equity funds, putting out their next fund, looking for capital, looking for anchor investors. I would think that you have to work through a sea of, of offerings and opportunities for your clients. I would think they're always asking you to evaluate 
varying investment strategies um, and other things for them. They do, and you know, it's great because what I think is the most powerful is not whether or not they decided at a given point whether to invest or not to invest in a particular thing or whether to set up a structure or not set up a structure. The most valuable part is the journey that we're on with them as we look at any of these opportunities or structures and the growing that they do and the learning about these issues so that it's not just a tactical decision of do I invest or do I not invest, but it's what are the things I should be asking about this investment and any other investment? How does it fit in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish? How much trust and confidence do I have in the person who is uh, suggesting this opportunity? So I think that every time a client comes to us and asks us to look at something or to help them with something, it is a huge learning opportunity for us with the family. And that's really our main role is really to help these families become competent and confident in all the decisions that have to do with their financial lives. Yeah, you're a steward. I mean, you're essentially their most trusted confidant and, and kind of all the, kind of at the top of the pyramid, uh, all those questions and that decision-making starts with you. Well, we try, <laughs> we try. Uh, uh, what makes we successful? What are kind of the key things that you would say, I am so glad that we accomplished this over a year or three or more? Well, I, I think that our success is based on whether we're helping our families be successful. And if we're helping our families be successful in terms of what they're trying to accomplish, then they refer us to other, other families. And so that, that helps tremendously with, with our growth. But I, I think there's not, a, there's not a silver bullet to the success. I think it's more that silver buckshot. But mm. I would say that it starts with just a complete alignment in terms of what we do to a family. It doesn't matter to us whether what the family's basically asking us to do is more governance related or more investment related or more reporting related, or it's all of the three, or if it's more about taxes or more about planning, it really doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is really understanding what is it that the family needs and how do we deploy our resources and our experience and our training to solve for the, for the family. So I think our success is based on that very singular fiduciary focus and approach to, to the families, as well as the fact that we have a lot of experience in the house. We've been around for a while and that helps. Yes, you have. I don't know whether you've actually added up the collective experience of you and your partners, but. I haven't, but I probably should. You and I were chatting a while back, Mel, about a very interesting and amusing analogy when we were talking about the wave of M&A and no doubt acquirers and interested parties have knocked on your door and tried to see what they could do with you and whether or not they could buy you. And you had a very interesting analogy as to how you looked at uh, potential M&A outcomes. So, you know, I think we are, my partners and I are incredibly surprised at the amount of consolidation going on, not in the RIA space, because most RIAs are really investment in the asset management business, and that is very scalable, and I, we understand that. But really, the, that there is this sort of multifamily office kind of space where there's this aggregation going on, and we know a lot of these people, and we respect them, and we've sort of been growing up 
you know, under similar circumstances that have stayed in touch and they're doing a lot of acquisitions and they're taking money from the private equity providers to do acquisitions. And they come and they talk to us about buying us or merging with us or whatever. And, and we find that there's basically two approaches. And, and um, one approach we call the sow. You know, you have a business, you take money, you fatten her up, you pretty her up. But eventually what you want to do is cash out. You're going to kill the sow and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and I call our approach more like a cow. Yeah. Okay. It's like we're in the dairy business and we want to have a very healthy cow. We want to feed her well. We want to keep investing in her. And we want to be able to actually have our partnership uh, be sustainable over generations of partners. And that's, you make a very different set of decisions. It, it, I mean, that, that perspective, whether you're really building the business to sell it, or you're building the business to transfer from one generation of partners to the other, I think sort of frames a lot of the decision-making you, you do along the way. I think you've been thoughtful in what you just said in making it much easier to transition the business internally by basically trading the stock at book value. You're not trying to create capital value internally for which your up and coming partners need to write ever bigger checks. And where's that coming from if they haven't created much wealth yet? It's the age old issue that we have solved for many times, but you kind of made sure that you wouldn't have to solve for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think on two levels, you know, my two uh, partners, uh, Michael and Santi, are much younger than I am. And, you know, I'm sure that one of the reasons we get all these calls is because people look up my age and say, oh, she must be ready to go. And how is she going <laughs> to? But frankly, we we solved for that from the beginning by by starting this company as three equal partners, which we are in every way, including the capital that we put into the business and the way we run the place. And they're much younger. So my succession is, is a non-event, but also by the way that we structured you know, the value of the equity. You know, I think it's thoughtful, obviously, when there's a situation that arises where people are determined to stay majority employee owned and they would like to create some value for the founders or exiting senior partners, it can make sense. But Dodging Cox, Capital Group, GMO, there have been a bunch of kind of large scale managers over time that have adopted your view and practice uh, well before we did it. And it takes a lot of these discussions and time yeah. spent dealing with it off the table. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because you do have a kind of unparalleled career, if I may say, as a woman leader in a white male dominated business for many decades, what's that been like? What would you give other listeners who are aspiring woman CEOs or leaders in the business and have found plenty of glass ceiling to be frustrated with? Well, it was different in my time than today. And, and in my time, I considered it as an advantage because I was always more memorable, <laughs> right? If you have five guys going to see clients from different institutions, and then there was me, they tended to remember me because, I was the one woman that went to see them. So I actually saw it as an advantage early on in my career. I think that in a way, being a woman gave me more flexibility with my management style. 
and I and I think that we're socialized a little differently, frankly. And and I think a lot of the a lot of the value we add is about about listening. Sometimes I don't know. I grew up having to learn how to listen, and and a lot of uh, I think the value that we have with our clients comes from being a good listener. So I I I think that that all played to my advantage today. I think it's more difficult because women are so much further along and they're not as memorable, yeah. right? Yeah. But I would say, you know, it, it's um, it's about being your authentic self. You know, I'm also Latina, you know, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes it got in the way. I remember when I was running Latin America uh, for for the bank and it was the be- by far the best franchise. We have been hugely successful. There was a, the position open to run the U.S., and the head of the bank came to me and said, I don't know whether you can run the U.S. because, you know, we know you can run Latin America because you're a Latina book and you run the U.S. I said, well, you'll never find out. And 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 I had, I did end up running the U.S. And he said, will you give up Latin America? And I said, no way. If you want me, I'll run them both. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it got in the way, but in the end, it never did. Well, I think you're a little bit modest. Obviously, it was more than being memorable. It was about being incredibly capable. Oh. But um, let's pivot to the client side. Let's pivot to the families that hire you and work with you and, and have for a long time. But but now at we, is there any specific distinction in being a woman-led, woman-owned firm? You hear a lot about diversity, gender lens investing. There are plenty of articles and thought pieces out about why women, and on a broader topic, women and minority-owned business uh, enterprises have not prospered more and why there's so few uh, really of any scale and success. When you look at it from your client's perspective, is is there anything to report there, anything material about when they hire you or when they evaluate you, you being a Latina woman or you having specific experiences that others wouldn't have had because of your heritage and background? Well, definitely our Latin American business, which is half of our business, it's really important that I understand the culture. Yeah. I mean, that that's a big deal. I, I mean, it would be very difficult to do what we do for the families if you don't understand the culture and you don't know the country. But in, in terms of, of, of the gender issue, what I tell you, what I would tell you, Chaz, that I am super proud of is how many women clients we have. Hmm. And when you say women clients, do you mean women only or women who are the leaders of their family? Women who are the leaders of their family. Yeah. And, and, and that's fantastic. And then uh, our ability to, um, you know, to include, I think the, the women feel very comfortable when we're in the room. And, you know, sometimes with these families, you know, you have the daughters and they don't have, they might not have a lot of financial expertise, but as, as we're working with the family and helping them really understand all these different financial issues, I think the fact that there are some women in the room really helps. By the way, it's not just me. I have wonderful women advisors as well. And I also think uh, when you're recruiting talent and you want female talent, it's easier when they can see themselves in terms of some of the other people in the company. You know, they feel comfortable. No question. And we've had the good fortune of backing several firms who are led by women. Um, and right. it's turned out pretty good, very yeah. well each time. 
Let's um, let's pivot over to ESG and impact, which has had just a resounding last couple of years as one of the dominant, if not the dominant theme in investment management from where we sit. What are your clients asking you to do? What are you working on with regard to ESG? So what we started finding maybe about five or six years ago was that we had some clients and I will tell you that they were mostly women uh, who, when they looked at their investments, they started saying, why can't my investment be aligned with my values? So it wasn't ESG as such, although it ends up being ESG investing, but it's really being able to understand what is it that's important to a particular family in terms of their values? And do they have the opportunity uh, to invest in a values aligned way, which is specific to them? So. For, so for some clients, it's, it's climate, but for other clients, it's, um, it's gender equality. For, you know, for other clients, it's education. Uh, for other clients, it's broader. For some clients, it's negative. I don't want anything with fossil oils or whatever. So I think the key is to, we start out with a values assessment to try to understand what's important to a particular family. And then we look for managers that actually express those values in terms of their investing. So we have several mandates from uh, clients uh, where basically they want us, they started out with a traditional uh, portfolio and they asked us to help them turn it into a values aligned portfolio around them. Uh, and we've done that. And the good news is after doing it for a few years, we actually can check the performance against traditional um, assets, traditionally managed assets. And frankly, the performance is the same or better. So they're not, we're, we're not doing this on a concessionary basis. None of our clients are being concessionary in terms of ESG. Well, I think actually that's one of the key points, which is it has long been looked at that you would have to give up performance in some respect to have an ESG or impact centric portfolio or strategy. That is clearly not the case with any long-term measures. But it's interesting to me, you kind of preempted a question that I was going to ask you because I was going to see whether or not clients are flocking to certain themes much more so than others. So was climate change more important than uh, diversity and equity inclusion? Do you find increasing interest in any one of those categories or is it really broad? And also, Mel, am I understanding that what you're really doing is more reactive, kind of based on client request and client uh, interest, you are organizing their investment lives around the themes that are important to them as opposed to kind of building more core foundational aspects of ESG and impact into the WE family office business. Yeah, again, for us, it all starts with the client and then we go out and search and help them buy and put together what they need to buy because we don't create any product. So it's all about understanding them and what they need and what's important and then create it. But we have we have portfolios that are, for example, completely on climate. Um, and uh, we have others, uh, other clients that are very gender focused that have really asked us on the DNI. And by, by the way, they, tend, they usually are women <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, are, who are asking us to uh, try to create uh, more uh, gender equity kind of portfolios to look for 
for, for example, for venture funds that are either founded or co-founded with women. And that's exactly what I wanted to close on. So very good segue. What advice you might give women listeners of this podcast, given what we've just said, and given how many are in the business and might aspire to something like your career, or at least put themselves in a position where that's a possibility, what advice could you give them? Uh, I think a lot of women are, are and I, I find this with the clients, um, might be turned off because of some of the sort of techno babble and techno speak, investment speak. It's almost like a different language sometimes. And, um, and so they find it hard to get involved. Actually, what I would tell women, and I tell my clients all the time, it's really very simple. It's a lot of common sense. Um, so it's not that hard and it can be quite exciting. And I find that uh, when women become in charge of their finances, they make fantastic uh, decisions. They just need to get through the fact that usually when we're growing up, we're not really encouraged to focus on this. Um, for, for the women who want to get into the business and who would want wealth management, well, it's, you know, it's, it's about helping families and it's about understanding really what a family's goals are and how it all sort of fits together, how their financial life fits together with their, the, the rest of their life and the goals of their life. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I will tell you my, my work, our work, is up close and personal. It really is. You get into people's lives and hopefully you help them uh, make their lives better and their families' lives better. I, I hope we has a long and prosperous future. Thank you, Chaz. And I really appreciate your interest in us. Well, enjoy talking with you again today, Mel, and I hope you have a great 2022.